Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Wisdom Awakening. I'm your host, Bishop E.W. Jackson. Great to be with you again today. Look, the only thing I want to point out before we jump right into the word today is this. Kansas just voted yesterday, uh, apparently overwhelmingly, to preserve abortion rights, which apparently the Supreme Court of Kansas has interpreted to be in the Constitution, <clears throat> which uh, some of the legal scholars that I've read said it's not theirs. They did the same thing that the, the Supreme Court of the United States did. They read in a right that's just not there, and they just made it up. It's not in the, it's not in the Constitution of Kansas at all. They just made it up. And so the Supreme Court has now upheld that right and said the legislature can't pass restrictions on that right, or at least the restrictions that they pass will have to pass Kansas constitutional scrutiny. But here's my point, a very simple point. The Supreme Court of the United States did not strike down so-called abortion rights. That did not happen. The left is going crazy as if it did. And they've tried to convince people that that's what happened. No, what actually happened was that the Supreme Court said there is no federal constitutional right to kill an unborn baby. There's no federal constitutional right to kill an unborn baby, period. Now, that means the battle now takes place at the states, and Kansas is an example of a state that's just voted overwhelmingly to maintain, quote-unquote, abortion rights. Let me tell you where we need to go, and then I'm going to jump right into the word. What we need to do is recognize the constitutional right of an unborn baby to live, that an unborn baby has constitutional rights, that from the moment of conception, that child has the protection of law, and that child's life, just like my life and your life, cannot be taken away without due process of law. And that due process of law <clears throat> would include circumstances that actually threaten the life of the mother, like an ectopic pregnancy, for example. Nobody is saying, I, I'm certainly not saying, that where a woman's life is actually in danger, she cannot make a decision to save her own life at the expense of the life that she carries. I'm not saying that. I think it's a bad decision, uh, but, but since I'll never be in that position, and that's a, that, that is a moral question of the highest order and magnitude, I think that's something that a woman ought to be able to examine between her conscience and, and the best medical advice she can get. Now, you know that many women faced with that choose to carry their, their, their children to term, deliver the baby, and in many instances, the mother and the child are fine, even though the medical community is saying that the mother's life is in danger. Now, there's some cases that are stark and obvious, okay? But that baby, in my view, has just as much of a right to the protection of the law as you or I do. 
and, and let's face it, that's the only logical approach to this. Because if you say, well, wait a minute, maybe at conception that's not true, but by the time the baby is six months, seven months, you can see that there's a baby there, that's different. Well, then how about five months? Oh, you can kill it then. Well, maybe not five months, what about four months? You see, it's, it's a slippery slope, there's no end to it. From the moment of conception, that is a baby. It is a baby in a very early stage of development, but that is a baby. And, from, and, and one minute before birth, that is, that is a baby. It is a baby, different in form, but no different in substance and reality than from the moment of conception. Created by Almighty God with a purpose and a plan. That is a sacred being, a human being. See, I think that basically unborn children should be given personhood. <clears throat> should be, there, let me restate that. The personhood of an unborn baby should be acknowledged by law. And I favor a constitutional amendment that does that, a, a federal constitutional amendment that does that. That would eliminate all abortions other than circumstances where the life of the mother is in danger, really in danger. I don't mean inconvenience, and I don't mean psychologically, she's not, uh, no, I don't, know. Where the life of the mother is in danger. Say, so, well, what about these young girls, like this 10-year-old girl who was raped? Horrible, horrible situation. I'd never see how you compound, how you make things better by compounding one evil by adding another. The evil of that rape, that's evil. It's wrong. It's deeply and profoundly depraved. But that baby didn't do it. And how in the world does adding to the trauma of rape, adding to the lifetime, adding to that, the lifetime guilt of having destroyed an innocent baby. How does that make sense? Well, let's face it. The argument of the abortionists, the argument of the, 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 the proponents of infanticide, because that's what it is, their argument is based upon the idea that we are simply animals. That's what, that's what they really believe. We are simply animals. And just like nobody would care if you, you killed a, a, a litter of cats, or, don't get me wrong, of course, I would care and people would care, but you understand what I mean. You're not going to get charged with murder for that, okay? Because we know that those are animals and they're, they're, just, they're simply given a different status than human beings. And here again, I'm an animal lover, so don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting animal cruelty is okay. It's wrong, too. Um, my point is we make a distinction between animals, between uh, insect life, animal life, all life, and human beings. 
I find bugs in my garage all the time, and most of the time, I just step on them. I don't feel any guilty conscience about it. And what, what the left and the Democrat Party and the abortionists really believe is that that unborn baby is nothing more than a cockroach. That's what they really believe. It has no more claim uh, to life than a gnat, a mosquito, a centipede, a spider, or some animal that is somebody doesn't want. And it, but that baby is different. That baby is sacred. That baby is the, is, is the creation of Almighty God. That baby is the, that baby is the beginning, the, 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 the earliest stage of development of what will ultimately become you and me, a sentient being, an intelligent being, a creative being, a moral being, an animal never is never going to become that. And so we acknowledge that there is a significant difference, but frankly, probably the people who don't think there's any problem with abortion probably don't acknowledge there's a difference between us and animals anyway. That's the whole point. So that stepping on a bug is no different than having an abortion. So that's where we need to go. We need a constitutional amendment that defines an unborn baby as a person because it is indeed a person. So how can you say it's a person? It can't talk. It can't walk. It can't live on its own. Can a baby just born, walk, talk, live on its own? But we acknowledge that's a person, don't we? So if it's a person, the moment it comes out of the womb, he or she comes out of the womb, how is it a, a not a person one minute before they come out of the womb. So then how's it a person, not a person one hour before? Well, how's it not a person one month before? Well, then how's it a person, not a person three months before and six months before and nine months before? It is. But that person is at different stages of development just like that newly born baby can't walk, can't talk, can't feed itself, can't care for itself in any way, is completely dependent upon the mother and father or adults to see to it that that baby is fed and kept safe and warm and comfortable so that it can grow and thrive into higher levels of personhood, higher levels of development, I should say, in his or her personhood. Already a person, but a person that needs to develop. Well, I mean, if you follow the logic of the abortion industry, What's the difference between killing a baby after it's born and killing it before it's born? It's still completely dependent. It's still incapable of doing the things that developed human beings can do. 
Why is it suddenly human? Because in one minute it was enclosed inside his mother's uterus and in the next minute it's out. Why is that? Why is it suddenly human then? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. All right. Let me, let me get on to the word because I didn't get to it yesterday. I talked a lot about healing, but I just wanted to point out based on this Kansas situation that abortion has not been outlawed and all of the, 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 the hysteria and the hyperbole of these Democrats and these leftists, like the end of the world has come and like women are being deprived of their most fundamental right. Like the most fundamental right is not, not to speak, not to think, not to worship, not to travel, not to, not to live, not to, not to do what you want to do. The most fundamental right is to kill an unborn baby. That, that is the, that's the basis of all human life now. I mean, it's insane. It is moral degeneration at an order of magnitude that's hard to fathom. So much so that people are being threatened with violence and even, even attacked violently because these people so worship at the altar of spilling the blood of unborn babies that they are ready to, some of them are ready to kill anybody who would dare stand in the way of their carrying out one of what they see as their sacred rights. Well, the satanic temple called it a religious right. Abortion is one of their religious rights, according to the satanic temple down in Texas that sued the state of Texas for restrictions on abortion. They said, because you're interfering with our First Amendment rights. We see abortion as part of our worship process, killing unborn babies. And it really is no different than the, the ancient practice in Israel and in the pagan nations around them of offering up babies to be burned alive on the, on the altar of Molech, uh, to be sacrificed in order to, to get a better life, to get the gods to be more favorable by spilling the blood, sacrificing the body of a baby to this pagan demonic entity that they call Molech or Baal. It's no, no different. In substance, it's no different because they're sacrificing these unborn babies to their own convenience. They want, they want a better life. My career is going to be better. I'll have more options. So that baby has to be killed so that I can have the kind of life I want. And it's just that stark. It's just that ugly, folks. And people have a moral blindness that doesn't allow them to see it. But, oh, God, open their eyes that they can see the horror of what they're doing and recognize that there is going to be an eternal judgment that they will have to confront unless they repent of the, the, the wickedness, the murderous wickedness of that sin and turn away from it and turn our hearts toward God. That's what we need for our nation, folks. That's what we, that's, that's what needs to happen. That's what an awakening, this program is called Wisdom Awakening. That's what the awakening is all about. It is about changing the hearts of our fellow citizens, turning their hearts toward God and towards God's stand, toward God's standard of righteousness rather than having their own self-righteousness. Because all our righteousness is, is filthy rags before him. Okay. Let's get to it, shall we? Now, we finished up in verse 5 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, actually. 
Uh, but we're going to go back to verse 4 to put chapter 5 and what follows in context. Chapter, uh, verse 4, I meant to say, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So our job, the Apostle Paul is saying, and the Holy Spirit is speaking through him, the job of pre preachers of the gospel is not to please people, it's to please Almighty God. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Now, that, that phrase, tests our hearts, means that God, by the way, God doesn't test you to find out what you'll do. He already knows. God tests you to show you what you'll do because you don't know. Sometimes we think we know until the test comes. Then we find out we're not what we thought we were. But God who tests the hearts, in other words, are you going to please people in order to make them happy with you? Or are you going to please me even if it makes others unhappy with you? See, that's the test. We're dealing with that test right now. The things I just talked to you about as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that some preachers won't touch it with a 10-foot pole because they don't want to upset people. They, they would please men. As Paul said, if I would please men, I would not be the servant of God. They're not the servants of God. They're the servants of people. I've always said, no man of God can serve people on their terms. You must serve people on God's terms. Because you serve people on their terms, they want you to do all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with God. Oh, I, I can't tell you. My 40 years of ministry, I've seen people do some stuff and just, and, and it's all God. Oh, the Lord is leading me. Oh, my goodness. Lord, help us. I mean, it's some of the most ridiculous stuff I've ever heard and people hide behind. Uh, you know, People who really think they're spiritual can be very dangerous. They really can. They can be very dangerous. When they get into this, I'm superior to everybody else because I've got it all. I know it all. I, oh, I, you, don't, you don't see it. Whew. Watch those people. Those people that have that sense of spiritual superiority to everybody else, like, I've arrived, you haven't. Why haven't you gotten to my level? Oof. Watch those people. Those people really are, they, they are dangerous. They are dangerous because they, their own ego will drive them and they will put it on God. Oh, this is the Lord telling me to do this. Yeah, all right. Okay. All right. You know, and, and most of them, because they are so superior, you can't tell them anything. You really can't because they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear uh, spiritual maturity and wisdom. They only want, they, they want you to rubber stamp whatever crazy idea they've come up with. But Paul said, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. See, some people can't be trusted with the gospel. They think they have been, but they aren't because they're not trustworthy. So even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Fifth verse says, but neither for neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor cloak for covetousness. God is witness. In other words, we didn't tell you what you wanted to hear so we could get something from you. You know, I, I tell you all the time, I really believe that God wants to prosper us. I know there are people who don't believe that. I don't know what Bible they're reading. 
I don't read anything in the Bible where God wants anybody poor. I mean, the Bible said Jesus came to preach glad tidings to the poor. Well, what's, what's glad tidings to the poor? Well, you're going to be poor the rest of your life, but there's good news. God loves you anyway. I mean, really? Well, then why even mention the poor? Just say he's coming to preach glad tidings, but says he came to preach glad tidings to the poor. And the glad tidings of the poor is God is your source and you don't have to be poor. For he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. So I believe that with all my heart and I've lived it. I am living it. However, however, we don't use the gospel as a cloak for covetousness. In other words, I don't say that because I'm trying to manipulate you to give me something. Well, I'm trying to manipulate you to, you know, I'm somehow if you make me rich, oh, I, mean, I can't stand that. I really can't. I can't stand that. This preacher up in New York just got robbed. And of course, the robbery was absolutely and unequivocally wrong. And the people who did it need to be caught and locked up. I think I think they have been arrested already. But they took $1.5 million worth of jewelry off of him. And, and he had, I guess he's got all these expensive cars and all that. And look, and he's got a right to all that. This is a free country. He has a right to it. And I don't envy him what he has at all. But here's what I'm saying. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about accumulation of wealth. I believe God makes people wealthy. I really do. I believe, and I'm not talking about Bill Gates and these heathens. I'm talking about God actually blesses people and gives them resources. The Bible teaches this. It's, it, read Psalm 112. It says, the man who delights himself in the Lord, wealth and riches will be in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Well, who made him rich? Abraham said when the king of Sodom wanted to give him a reward for his help, uh, in defeating some of these pagan kings that Abraham's men went out and fought, Abraham said, I will not receive a dime. I will not let it be said that any man made Abraham rich. So Almighty God makes me rich. You see the difference? You see the distinction there? And there are people out there, and, and here again, and I'm not saying this guy is one of them. I don't know, but I know when you, when you seem to want to display all of this wealth and that becomes your persona. I look, I got a million dollar diamond ring on. I got this on. I got that on. I'm driving a Lamborghini. I'm driving a, a, a Bentley. When that becomes your persona, to me, you are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are doing something else. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to have expensive things. I'm not even saying it's wrong to have a, a, a Bentley. I, I don't know why anybody would need one. A preacher would need one, but that's what you want. You got plenty of money. Fine. Have at it. But if you're really dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it does seem to me that rather than these lavish displays of wealth, even if you have it, what you want to do is display lavish giving. Be a blessing to others. Not look at the kind of car I drive, but rather, Lord, how can I be a blessing to someone who needs a car and doesn't have one?
How can I be a blessing to someone who needs a house and doesn't have one? How can I be a blessing to someone who needs clothing and doesn't have it to wear? Or needs income, needs food and doesn't have it? They're, 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 they're on hard times right now. How can I use what you bless me with? See, the purpose of wealth is not for ostentatious display. The purpose of wealth is for distribution to those whom God wants you to bless. That's its real purpose. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves us and wants good things for us. I mean, I'm grateful to God for, for, for the life that God has given us. I mean, I don't have a yacht, and I'm not really interested in one. I do want an airplane, but I don't, I don't have one. I'm not unhappy about that. But I don't want it so I can say, hey, look at me. Ooh, I got an airplane. I, I, I want it so I can travel more efficiently and get from one place to another without having to go through all these shenanigans you have to go through the commercial flights. I mean, it just it gets ridiculous. Huh? I've actually missed things, thinking I had plenty of time, delays here, delays there, there and, and end up not being able to get where I'm going in time to do what I've been asked to do. I mean, I try to avoid that by leaving extra early, which again takes up more time. So, but it's, it's just a practical tool for me uh, in terms of, of what I want, not Oh, look, 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 I've got a, I've got a G, I've got a G5. I, I mean, the gospel is not a cloak for covetousness. Okay. Let's move on to the sixth verse. It says, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, we, we didn't, I had somebody say to me um, at a funeral and I was presiding and somebody got up to read the scripture and after the funeral, the person came up to me and said, oh, I'm so sorry that I didn't acknowledge you when I came up to read the scripture. And I thought, acknowledge me? <laughs> what do I care, you know? It's like, look, there are times when protocol demands that you acknowledge people who may be your host if you're being, but I never even thought about who I could care less because we're there to, to comfort and encourage the family who's just lost a loved one. We're not there for everybody to acknowledge me. And I mean, I know that I'm sure it was said in, in, in decency and honor and all that, but I'm just thinking to myself, what do I care about you acknowledging me? It says, nor did we seek glory from men. I'm not, I'm not there to seek glory from people. Said either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, yeah, and a person in that position could say, yes, the first thing you should do when you get up after you acknowledge God is you should acknowledge me because I am the person. I suppose you have, as, as the word here says, as, as a pastor or bishop, or you might have the right to do that perhaps, but you don't. Because Jesus said, take the low seat that you might be lifted up higher. And don't get me wrong, I, I'm not in any way suggesting that there shouldn't be respect for people in spiritual leadership and authority. There should be. I'm saying that for the person in leadership, in authority, it should not be about getting everybody to acknowledge me. That's seeking glory from men. 
the glory you want is from Almighty God. It says in the seventh verse, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. In other words, rather than lording it over you, we were gentle with you because the point is love. You know, there's no pastor worth a salt that is interested in having command over people. A true pastor is interested in shepherding people, blessing people, helping people. Now that does here again, that does not mean that a pastor doesn't have authority that must at times be exercised firmly. It does not mean that, but that's not what you're in it for. I just share a little secret with you. Okay. I don't think I've ever said this on the air. I don't think I've ever said this in public. The thing I hate most, I shouldn't say hate most. That's the wrong way to put it. The thing I enjoy least, that's a better way to put it. The thing I enjoy least about being in a leadership role is having to correct people, is having to rebuke people. And it comes, it comes with the territory you have to. I don't like it at all. And particularly when I think I'm correcting and rebuking somebody for something that I think I really shouldn't even have to say. Because I just don't want to do it. I mean, you're a grown human being. What, what, why, why do you need me to do this? Why should I have to do this? I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I think there are people who enjoy lording it over you. I am the person in charge and I demand. And I, I think there are people who love that. I think there are even passive aggressives who really love it and pretend that they don't. I don't. I don't. But, but, from time to time, it's something you're forced to do. And you know, a lot of times, I, I, I and, and, and I probably, this is probably not, I'll, I'll, some, sometimes I'm working this stuff out with the Lord, because probably not the best, because sometimes I just you know, say, you know what, forget it. I, I just don't want to be bothered with that. And if that's where this person is, I just pray for him and go on about my business. I'm not even going to bother to take the time to, because a lot of times, you know, I've said this before, <laughs> the Bible says a wise man loves rebuke. I haven't met any of them yet. <laughs> I haven't met a single one that I can remember. Uh, I, I'd like to think I'm one, but it's, it's, listen, people simply don't respond well to correction. Christians even don't for the most part. There are rare exceptions. There are rare exceptions. Okay. This is wise man loves rebuke. That doesn't mean I haven't met people who, who receive it with equanimity and accept it and humbly, you know, surrender themselves to it and say, you know what, pastor, you're right. But you know what I find most of the time people defend themselves. Well, wait a minute, and then they turn and point the finger back at you. If you were really a man of God, you wouldn't even be bringing this up. <laughs> so, you know, where, is there any fun in that? No, absolutely not. And a, and, a, and a true pastor, that's not what you live for anyway. But this is what you live for. We were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children so affectionately longing for you 
we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. That's the true heart of a pastor. Not rebuke, not command, not lording it over, but loving and shepherding and supporting and helping. That can be pretty hard with some people, but that's the heart of a pastor anyway. Listen, that's going to do it for today. God bless each and every one of you. I hope you got something out of the word today. We're going to come back and pick up at uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 is where we'll start. Okay? Uh, we may go back and review a little bit, but verse 9 is where we'll start. In the meantime, look, stand up, step up, speak up, refuse to back up, and this word of God is your foundation. It is your bulwark. As long as you are staying on the truth, you cannot be defeated. We cannot be defeated if we will not quit because we are on God's side.